First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. If you have your Bibles today, church, and I hope you do, would you turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. And as I mentioned earlier, today we're coming to the end of our three-month journey through Paul's letter to uh, the Philippians. Uh, You know, I've always loved this uh, particular book uh, of the Bible, uh, but my love for it has only increased as I've had the chance to study it uh, each week during this series. I pray your love for this book has increased as well. And uh, and I believe today that the Lord has a, a special message Uh, for us in these final verses as we talk about today how to live with a joy-filled, Christ-centered contentment, a contentment that can be ours regardless of our circumstances. Now let's read it together, Uh, Philippians 4, we'll start in verse 10 today and we'll read to the end of the letter. Paul writes, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I've learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. Now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving but you only. For even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. Indeed, I have all and abound. I am full having received from Epaphroditus the things sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brethren who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, but especially those who are of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. And Father, we thank you, Lord, for the words that you have inspired. These words that you have given us in this letter to the Philippians. Father, these words that come to us in this final chapter of this letter. And Father, we pray today that you would teach us the secrets of true contentment. Lord, I pray today for any in this room that do not yet have a relationship with you through your son Jesus. Father, today they might come to know you. They might put their faith in your son. Father, I pray you would build up your church today through your word that we might trust in you that we might find our contentment in Christ. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, the part of the letter uh, that we are looking at today has been called uh, Paul's thank you letter. And in many ways, uh, this is uh, Paul writing and thanking them from his jail cell 
in Rome, thanking them for the gift that they had just sent to him by the hand of their messenger, Epaphroditus. And Paul does thank them in these verses, but not in the way that we are accustomed to. If you notice, he never directly thanks this church, but he does thank God for their gift. He tells them how joyful he is because of their gift, but even that uh, is not for the reasons that we might think. And we'll see that as we go along. But the theme that really runs through this whole thank you section of this letter is the theme of contentment. The contentment that Paul had, uh, the contentment that Paul says we can have if we would follow his example. And contentment is not common, is it? Contentment, true contentment, was not common in Paul's day 2,000 years ago, and it's certainly not common today. A, a Puritan writer named Jeremiah, Jeremiah Burroughs wrote a book on the subject of contentment, and I love his title. He called it The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. And Burroughs is right. It is a rare jewel, but it is a jewel. Think about what it would be like to be perfectly content no matter what happens to you. To be able to have a contentment that is not affected by our circumstances in life. That would be amazing. And this jewel is something Paul says we can all have if we know Christ as our Savior. And he wants to show us how in these verses. I believe in, in these final verses we can see four keys to discover true contentment. Here's the first key. Paul says if we want to really discover true contentment, we must learn to trust God's providence in every circumstance. Verse 10 starts out like this. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. And I think it's fitting that this final section of the letter starts with this theme of joy. This is the theme that we've seen running through this whole book. This whole book is about joy in Jesus. And, and church, let's never forget that, that our joy, where we find joy, is in our relationship with our Savior, Jesus Christ. And here in verse 10, there's a particular reason for Paul's joy in the Lord. Look at the rest of the, the verse. He says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last your care for me has flourished again. Though you surely did care, but you lacked opportunity. Paul says that the reason for his joy is this gift that they had just sent to him. Again, this gift that came by the hand of Epaphroditus. When, when Paul says that now at last your care for me has flourished again, he's using the image of a flower uh, that comes into bloom and then goes dormant for a while and then blooms again. The Philippian church had supported Paul about 10 years prior to this, and now they were supporting him again. Their care had bloomed Again, now Paul doesn't want them to misunderstand what he's saying, and that's why he adds on this part. He says, though you surely did care, but you lacked the opportunity. Paul knew that this church loved him. Uh, Paul knew that this church never had stopped caring about him, but they just didn't have the opportunity to give uh, until now. But when the opportunity came, they seized it. 
What I really want us to notice here is how content Paul was before he ever received their gift. That's why Paul says in the beginning of verse 11, Not that I speak in regard to need, for I've learned in whatever state I am to be content. So in a way, Paul is saying, thank you for the gift, but I do need you to know that I didn't really need it. Uh, Paul is not being rude when he says that. He's just trying to teach them and to teach us about this principle of contentment. He, he wants them to know, I was already content in the Lord before your gift ever arrived. And one of the reasons that Paul could already be content in the Lord, even though he was in a Roman prison under house arrest, chained to a Roman guard night and day, is because of his trust in the sovereignty and the providence of the Lord. And really, we see this truth just arising from the entire letter to the Philippians that we have studied together. Paul knew that every detail of his life was under the sovereign care of the Lord. He, he knew what he had written in Romans 8.28, that God is working every detail in our life together for our good. He knew that God was sovereign over his life, and he had learned by experience to trust the sovereign hand of his God. And so just like he told the Philippians in verse 19, when he told them that God would meet all of their need, Paul was trusting in the sovereignty of God that somehow, some way, God was going to meet all of his needs according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Paul could be content because he knew God was in control. And Christian, you and I can be content today, right now, because we should know that God is sovereign. And that God is in control of every detail in our lives. That's one of the keys uh, to learning true contentment. We must learn to trust God's providence in every situation. Here's the second key. If we want to know true contentment, we must learn that contentment has nothing to do with how much or how little we have. And we can see that in verse 11 and 12. He says, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. Two times in these two verses, Paul says, I have learned this. I have learned how to be content. In verse 12, the word that he uses for learned there is, is a word that means to be initiated into a secret. But Paul is saying, I've, I've learned the secret to contentment. He didn't learn it easily, but he had learned it by experience. He says, I, I've learned how to be abased, how to have absolutely nothing, and I've learned how to abound. I've learned how to have everything. I've learned how to be content in every situation. But how many Christians today, how many of us in this room would be able to make the same statement as Paul? To be able to say, no matter what situation I find myself in, whether I'm rich, whether I'm poor, whether I have or whether I don't have, I can be content in the Lord. It seems like the writer of Proverbs 30 understood that both poverty and prosperity can present hurdles to overcome. Listen to this word, these words. He asked the Lord this, two things I request of you, 
Deprive me not before I die. Remove falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food allotted to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So he, he recognizes both poverty and prosperity bring with it their own temptations. And so the writer of Proverbs here is saying, give me neither one. And yet at, at times in our life, we may find ourselves on one end or the other of this spectrum. Sometimes we find ourselves in a place where we don't have enough or where we believe we don't have enough. Maybe there's been times in your life where you've been there. Maybe you're there right now. And if so, the temptation is to become afraid. The temptation is to to doubt God's provision, to worry, to stay up thinking, how am I going to survive this? How is my family going to get through this? There's also a temptation to become jealous or envious of those that you see around you that have more than you. There is even a, a danger of, of our hearts going to a dark place where we become angry at God for our lot in life because we think that we deserve better than what we have even though in reality God has been so gracious to us. And has given us so much more than we deserve. But you know, for most of us, we don't have that problem. We're not abased, to use Paul's terminology. For most of us, the challenge is how to be content when we abound. Because by the world's standards, we do abound. And yet the temptation is, even when we abound, to still think that we need a little bit more, right? We need a little bit nicer neighborhood. We need a little bit bigger house. We just need a little newer furniture. We just need a little nicer car. We just need to be able to take a little bit better vacations. And and it's always a moving target, isn't it? If we seek to find our contentment in the things that we possess or the experiences that we have, we will never, ever have enough. And I think we live in a culture that just feeds that sin of discontentment within us, right? Think about it. Everything on TV, every advertisement that you see is designed to produce discontentment inside of you. It's designed to make you feel like my life, if I don't have whatever that is that they're selling, my life is such an abysmal failure. It's amazing I even get out of bed in the morning if I don't have that. And and social media, I think, just kind of feeds into that as well, right? Because nobody posts on their Facebook page uh, about the day that they got up and went to work and came home and fed the dog and went to bed. I mean, I guess some people do. They post about every single thing in their life and what they had for breakfast and everything else. But most people don't, right? Most people post about post-worthy things. And so you're scrolling down your feed and you see these friends who just went to the Bahamas and it's awesome. 
And these other friends that just bought a new house and it's fantastic. And these other friends that you're not even sure they are your friends, but they're your Facebook friends. And they are at a week at Disney World and it's, it's Mickey Marvelous, right? And they're having a great time. And so you're, you're looking at all of these things and it has a way of beginning to produce inside of us, in our hearts and in our minds, a feeling that my life is, is somehow not up to par if I'm not experiencing all of these things. It feeds a sense of discontentment in our hearts. We're living in a day where it's not just enough to keep up with the Joneses when it comes to our house looking as nice as theirs. We also have to keep up with the Smiths with their travel itinerary, and we have to keep up with the Browns with the amazing plans they have to entertain their children this summer, and it just never ends. And I think what Paul would say to us, if he could, is that it doesn't matter if we can afford to do those things and to buy all those things or not, because we cannot buy contentment. Well, we're not going to find the kind of contentment that Paul is talking about here in the Bahamas or at Disney World. We can go there and experience all those things and come back just as discontented as we were when we left because here is the truth. If we can't be content when we have nothing, we still won't be content if we get everything. Paul said he could be content whether he had everything or nothing. Isn't that what he says here? I know how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. His circumstances made no difference whatsoever to how content he was. So clearly, the secret to contentment that Paul discovered was located somewhere else, somewhere different than where the world is looking for its contentment. The secret to contentment is in verse 13. Probably the most famous verse in the book of Philippians and also the most misquoted. Look at it with me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So how is it that Paul could be content in a Roman prison, chained to a Roman guard night and day, when we can't be content in our nice American houses? Paul learned what we must learn. We must learn to depend on Christ's strength in every situation. I know people love to quote verse 13 and apply it to almost everything. And probably where I see verse 13 the most is in the arena of sports. And whatever sport it is, you'll see people quoting this word. You'll see people writing it on their wristbands, right? Writing it on their eye black. And it's fine. This is a, a wonderful verse. But this verse doesn't mean that whatever I want to accomplish in the arena of sports, I can accomplish it through Christ who strengthens me. I can stand in front of a 10-foot basketball goal all day long and quote Philippians 4.13. And you know what? Unless God reaches down and picks me up by the seat of my pants and gives me a three-foot addition to my leaping ability, I am never going to dunk that ball. 
And that is not what verse 13 is talking about. When he says, I can do all things, the all things refers to the all things in verse 12. All the situations that we might find ourselves. It corresponds to the times when we have a lot and the times when we don't have much at all. It refers to every stage and every season of life that we might find ourselves in. And Paul is saying, I can handle every situation in my life and still be content and still have joy regardless. And you know how I can do it? I can do it through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it because Christ literally puts the strength inside of me. That's what these words mean. Earlier, we read how Paul said, I've discovered the secret of true contentment. But it is an open secret. It's a secret that has been revealed to us. It's a secret that is right here in front of us. The secret to contentment is found in Christ who who strengthens us and enables us to be content no matter what. Here's the thing I've been thinking about this week. All true born-again Christians are in Christ. And all true born-again Christians have Christ living in in them. And so why is it that some Christians like Paul seem to be more content than others? Why is it that so many of us, and I'm putting myself in that category, struggle in this area of contentment? What was Paul doing that we are not doing? How was Christ strengthening Paul to be content in a way that uh, so many of us are not being content and falling into sin and are living as a grumbling, discontented people who are never satisfied with our lot in Life. I think it's probably a lot of reasons for that, but I think it boils down to this. It's something that Paul said earlier in this letter, back in chapter 1 and verse 21, when he said, For me to live is Christ. For, for Paul, to live was Christ. It was all about Christ. It was all about knowing Christ. It was all about making Christ known. And I think a lot of times for us, for us, for me, to live is me. For us to live is is us. We think about our needs. We think about our wants. We think about our comfort. We think about our entertainment. We think about our bank account. And if we live for ourselves, then we will never be content unless our circumstances are perfect. And you know as well as I do that they're never going to be perfect. But if we agree with Paul, that our life isn't really about us at all. That we were created by God to bring Him glory. That we have been redeemed in Christ to know Christ and to make Christ known. If we agree with Paul, what he said in chapter 3, that everything else in life is a loss compared to the gain of knowing Jesus Christ, if we agree with him about that, then we can say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Friends, there are no shortcuts to this rare jewel of contentment. It only comes as we press in to our relationship with Christ. We have to abide in him and allow him to abide in us because only Jesus can put this kind of strength into our hearts. Here's the final key to discovering 
true contentment that we see in this passage. If we would be contented, we must develop a preoccupation with the needs of others. Starting in verse 14, Paul comes back to talk about this gift that they had sent him. And he does that because he had gone on for so long talking about how content he was without their gift that he didn't want them to think that he was ungrateful for the gift that they had sent him. And so he says in verse 14, Nevertheless, you have done well that you shared in my distress. The word well there actually means beautiful. He's saying you've done a beautiful thing when you sent that gift. And then he says you shared or you partnered with me in my distress. The Philippian church modeled putting the needs of others ahead of their own needs when they sent this gift to Paul. And in verses 14 through 19, Paul also models in the way that he received this gift and in the way that he spoke to this church, he also modeled putting the needs of others ahead of our own needs. Again, contentment will not come when we put ourselves first. Contentment comes when we look to Christ and we think about him and we think about others. In these verses, Paul says several things to them about their gift. And again, in all of these things, we're going to see that Paul is preoccupied with this church and with their needs. First off, he says because of their sacrificial giving that they were his partners in ministry. We've already seen that in verse 14, but in verse 15, we find out that that this gift that they had just sent was not the first time that they had supported Paul. Verse 15 says, now you Philippians know also that in the beginning of the gospel, when I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me concerning giving and receiving, but you only. Verse 16 as well, for even in Thessalonica, you sent aid once and again for my necessities. Paul says, this has been a history of your support of the ministry that God has given me. You sent aid to me when I first left you, when I first left Philippi, and I went to the cities of Thessalonica and Berea. You were the only church that that supported me. And he says, you supported me also, even when I left the entire region of Macedonia where Philippi is located. You supported me when I went on to Athens, when I went on to other cities beyond that. You have partnered with me time and time again. And what Paul wants to commend them about that is this. He wants them to know that by supporting me, you have become a partner. You have become a part of the work that God is accomplishing. And that principle, church, is still true today. When we give, when we give our tithe through the local church, when we give a gift above and beyond that tithe to other ministries uh, that God is working through, you know what? We become a partner in everything that is being accomplished, that is being done by God through uh, that local ministry. We can be a partner in what the Lord is doing. Paul also told them in verse 17, because of what they had given, that they would receive an eternal reward. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that abounds to your account. He's trying to be clear about his motives. He wants them to know, I'm not seeking the gift. I'm not chasing money. I'm not trying to, certainly not trying to coax you into giving anything more. What what I want you to know is that I was excited when I received your gift primarily because of what it said about you. Paul, who had first shared the gospel with these Philippian believers, was excited when he received their gift because you know what it meant that the Philippian believers were living like believers. 
That they were showing a generous spirit that a believer should have who's been saved by the generous grace of God. And he says, I want you to know that there is fruit, there is literally profit accruing to your account because of your gift. Now, what account is he talking about? He's talking about their eternal account with God. He's not saying that they were saved through their giving. They were saved by faith in Christ alone. But he was saying the same thing that Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, that when we give, we are storing up treasures in heaven and we will receive an eternal reward. As one person put it, we can't take it with us, but we can send it on ahead. And we send it on ahead when we sacrificially give to the things that matter to the heart of God. In verse 18, Paul wants to emphasize that he doesn't need anything else. And so he says, indeed, I have all. I abound. I'm full. I've received from Epaphroditus the thing sent from you, a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. The language at the end of that verse is the language of worship. He's telling them that their gift, that through their gift, they were offering pleasing worship to God. Just like in the Old Testament, the sacrifices that were offered rose up to God as a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Paul is saying that when you gave your gift, it was an expression of worship. It was a sweet and pleasing smell to God. And the same is still true for us. Church, when we see another believer in need and we give, especially when we give sacrificially to meet that need, the Lord sees that, and the Lord is pleased with that, and it is a spiritual act of worship that rises up to him. We will find when we give that we can never outgive God. And that is why the final thing Paul says to them about their gift in verse 19 is that because of their giving, God would meet all their needs. Verse 19, what a wonderful promise. And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Now notice it doesn't say that God would meet all of their greeds. It says that God would meet all of their needs. And God saw their sacrificial giving to support Paul's work. And he would not be unjust to leave their own needs unmet. God would give out of his riches, which are inexhaustible, to meet every need that they have. And if we're living and giving like the Philippians were, the Lord will be faithful church to meet every need in our life as well. I heard about a young married couple that was helping out in their, uh, in their youth ministry. And this young married couple, things were very tight as they often are uh, when we first get married. And one night they were looking at their bank account and they only had 13 cents in their bank account. Anyone relate to that? 13 cents in their bank account. They were without many basic supplies that they needed and one of them was toilet paper. And so as we have seen in this uh, chapter in in verses 6 and 7, we're not supposed to worry about everything. We're supposed to pray about everything. And so they did that. They gave all of their needs to God. And that night, uh, the youth group from their church that they had helped out with decided that they were going to roll their house. (laughs) And they came, and apparently they didn't know how to roll the house very well. They only used one roll of toilet paper on the trees and the bushes. They put the rest of the package on the front door. They rung the doorbell, and they left. And so the couple came to the door, opened the door, and they're sitting right there on the doorstep. Package of toilet paper. I don't know what your needs are. 
Maybe they're diapers. Maybe it's formula. Maybe it's a job. If we're living and we're giving as God calls us to do, if we're taking everything to him in prayer, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. As we come to the final verses of this great letter, Paul shares a few words that are very important. We'll look at them quickly. First, the letter of Philippians closes with a word of glory. Paul writes in verse 20, Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Paul has just shared this wonderful truth about how God meets all of our needs, and it's almost like he can't hold himself back from declaring and ascribing glory to God as he thinks about that truth. And so it should be with us. As we think about all that God has done for us, as we think about all that he's promised to do for us, glory to God should rise up in our hearts. He closes with a word of glory, but he also closes with a word of greeting in verses 21 and 22. Three times in those two verses, he sends greetings to this church. And these greetings remind us of a couple things. They remind us that first off, Paul knew this church and he loved this church. Just as we should know the people of our church and love the people of our church. But secondly, it also shows us that this letter was written to real people who were called to live out the words of this letter in real life just as we are. There's a word of glory here, there's a word of greeting here, but also there's a word of gospel progress here. And it's buried at the end of verse 22. He says, all the saints greet you, but especially those of Caesar's household. Again, I believe that Paul was writing this letter from Rome and Caesar's household referred not just to his immediate family, but to all of the, what we would call government workers who worked in the city of Rome. And Paul is saying that some of them had come to faith in Christ. And there should be nothing that excites the heart of a believer more than hearing that people have been rescued from darkness and have been transferred to God's kingdom in marvelous light. How thrilled they must have been to hear some of Caesar's household are saints as well, and they greet you. There's a word of glory here, a word of greeting here, a word of gospel progress, and finally, Paul ends this letter where he began it. By blessing these people with a word of grace. Look at verse 23. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. There is nothing that we need more than grace. We need God's grace to be saved, to grow in Christ. We need God's grace to live with contentment. We need God's grace to do everything in the Christian life. But notice where this grace is found. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. The title of this series has been Joy in Jesus. And I've said that the theme of this letter is joy, and it is. But even more than the theme of joy, the theme of this letter is Jesus. Just under 40 times the name of Jesus is mentioned in these four chapters. Paul calls himself a bondservant of Christ. He writes to these Christians and he calls them saints in Christ. He tells them how he longs for them with the affection of Christ. He tells them that his imprisonment and his chains are in Christ. He says that for him to live is Christ. He calls them to conduct themselves worthy of the gospel of Christ. He implores them to have the mind of Christ. He calls us to rejoice in Christ. He calls us to count everything lost for the excellence of knowing Christ. He talks about eagerly waiting for the return of Christ. And he says that God will meet all of our needs in Christ. Church, everything about the Christian life is wrapped up in the person of Jesus Christ. May the grace 
of the Lord Jesus Christ be with us all. Amen. Thank you.